Hey everyone, welcome back to the BIPOC Outside Podcast. I'm Chris Cromwell, and today we're sitting down with Rachel Alzer. Rachel is a multi-sport athlete, a pro mountain biker, the co-founder of Pedal to the People, and the executive director of All Bikes Welcome. So let's get into it, shall we? But before we get into it, you know this show doesn't happen without our title sponsor, Narco Dirt Series. The Dirt Series hosts weekend-long mountain bike camps throughout Canada and the U.S. in some of the most exceptional ride locations. Whether you're a new rider or wanting to advance your skills, the Dirt Series offers gender-specific, co-ed, and youth-focused camps. Check them out at dirtseries.com or find their partner link on our website. Rachel, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. You're so welcome. I'm excited about this. So let's jump right in. You're originally from Nevada. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You did good. You pronounced it correctly. It's always really, it's like, what are they going to say? Are they going to say it correctly? Yeah, I'm from Nevada. And that is how you say it. And that that is probably the biggest sticking point for people from Nevada is that it is pronounced Nevada. (laughs) So you are a multi-sport athlete, climber, skier, cross-country biker. What was your first introduction to the outdoors? How did you get, you know... what you're doing today that's such a good question i'm always trying to put the pieces together myself to be honest i think definitely growing up in the southwest was there is uh in some ways kind of a natural connection to the outdoors like i think especially those southwestern cities because the mountains are so present and so many of the cities are valleys and you're just surrounded by mountains you know vegas is a valley I went to college in Phoenix, that's a valley. So many cities in, in New Mexico, Utah, they're all valleys. So it's really easy to just kind of look out your window and see the mountains and feel inspired by that. And, uh, and we took, like growing up, we took road trips out to various like national parks or places. We would go to Death Valley a lot during the blooms. And that was always really, that just really imprinted in my brain, like, wow, this is so cool. Not only is it this beautiful national park, which a lot of people from, they think of Death Valley as being in California, but part of that is in Nevada. The hottest, driest parts of Death Valley are in Nevada. And they were about two hours, maybe more like an hour, hour and a half from where I grew up. And I just loved those moments. Like I love those trips. And I really, I feel like my intro to the outdoors was like playing sports outside and I was really into skateboarding. My dad grew up in California and was kind of part of that like era of like Dogtown Z boys, like <laughs> skating. And so I always just thought that was super cool. And I just wanted to be like that cool, like skate, like skater, or, like skateboarder. And I was totally a tomboy growing up. I don't know if we still use that term or if it's more like, I think I was non-binary growing up. That's really what it was. Like I didn't conform to like, traditional like gender norms like I wanted to skateboard and do adventure sports and and like skin my knees you know and I didn't care about you know really traditionally like girly things and so that was like my introduction and I I used to like ride my bike around town like where I grew up and I got I got introduced to these like downhill trails that I'm looking back on it I should not have been riding they were very very challenging they are um, supposedly like the hardest downhill riding in the world, like some of the hardest downhill, it's, it's called Bootleg Canyon. And, uh, and so by the time I got to college, like I had basically like picked out Arizona because it was a Mecca for outdoor adventure. And I was psyched on being in this place that was basically like Nevada, but more like had even more to explore. And yeah, and it kind of took off from there. And I think being, you know, I studied biology and I think that was kind of a natural connection too, where it was like, oh, I get to be outside also. So, yeah. And then, and then from there into the Midwest, into a totally different (laughs) ecosystem. Yeah, that, yeah. I, I think it's always like, you know, I was just at this event last night and it's like, where are you from? And it's like, well, I'm here in Arkansas by way of Minnesota, but I'm originally from Vegas and like trying to kind of uh, give that history. But yeah, I moved to Minnesota, Minneapolis, Minnesota in 2015. 
to go to grad school. I was absolutely terrified because I had no idea like what I was getting into, both on the end of like going to grad school and on the end of uprooting my life and moving to somewhere totally different. I really credit my younger self for just having a lot of do it anyway mentality. It was like she she wasn't reckless. She was willing to do things regardless of what you were supposed to do or what was the norm. You know, like I didn't realize people don't just like move across the country. Like I just thought that's what people do. It's fine, you know, people keep moving. I mean, my dad recently relocated to a new place. Like, I think my family is rather nomadic. And I think that was just very, that seemed normal. And they've always been really supportive of me moving around. But I do remember, like in 2014, the wet, they had like some of the worst winter weather they'd ever had. (laughs) And I remember, like being on like watching the weather channel or something and being like, damn, I'm glad I don't live there. (laughs) And I didn't know at the time that I had any plans to move there. So yeah, I, that kind of came back around to me once I was living there experiencing some really, really harsh winters. But yeah, I, I really actually enjoyed the Midwest and I feel like I have, you know, I, I really, I really see it for what it is and I really have a love for it. So so, I mean, you have adventured basically across North America through your many moves. <laughs> what are some of your favorite trail stories? Oh, such a good question. I remember, okay, so when I first moved to Minnesota, when I moved to Minneapolis, I, you know, I would do a lot of things on my own, like just a lot of adventuring on my own. Minnesota, when I moved there, I didn't know anyone. I didn't, you know, I didn't have any community. Like I was just going there. I, I luckily got in with you know, a couple roommates and made friends with them, but, you know, they didn't ride mountain bikes or anything. And the thing about moving to Minnesota is I knew, you know, at the time I mostly was a climber, a rock climber. I thought was what I did, but I knew moving there that I wasn't going to be climbing as much. Like it was going to be hard to come by. So I was like, that's fine. I'll just lean more into riding bikes. And Minnesota is such a bike friendly place in general. Minneapolis is an incredibly bike friendly city. The trail riding is incredible. So when I first moved there, I would get really into just like a weekend would be a good weekend would be like, wake up, like do some yoga, eat a hearty breakfast, drive to a trailhead, ride for a couple hours, come home, you know, just really like in this groove. And I would drive to a new trail system every week. And the first time I went out to now one of my favorite trail systems, I remember this person from the parking in the parking lot came up to me and I had I still had my Nevada license plate on my car and they just thought that was the coolest thing. It was like, oh my gosh, you're from Nevada? Like, wow, like where are you like what are you doing out here? And it was just like it was so Midwestern, like looking back on it, like it was so nice. <laughs> and I just was like, wow, people are really friendly here because that just would not happen elsewhere. Like, you know, just a stranger coming up and starting a conversation with you. Yeah. And it was a really, at the time, just felt really special to be like, oh, that that is part of the culture here. It's like niceness. And I think that can be a double-edged sword, but it was really at the time felt like a really welcoming experience. So that's one of my favorite, like I come back to that a lot, like, oh yeah, that was really cool. Aww, that's really yeah. sweet. <laughs> I think my my favorite trail memory will always be the time that my two friends, my now two friends, Eric and Tracy came out to Minnesota and we rode in Duluth and worked on this project for Patagonia. And it was the first time that I'd ever ridden with only people of color. It was like, I can say so confidently looking back, like such a transformative experience. Like that's what really, I think, turned the tide for me with the work I do now. So that- One of the impetuses for Pedal to the People, right? One of the impetuses, that's like Pedal to the People came out of that trip. Those two folks are to this day, like two of my closest friends. And I think just realizing through that trip what, real joy and connection to self and community could look like. I mean, I just had never had that 
And I'm so grateful to to have had that experience. And I come back to that, I think, a lot, those memories a lot of like my why of how that feels, how that felt for me, and wanting other folks to have opportunities to feel that too. So tell us about Pedal to the People. Yeah, I started, Eric and I, Eric Arce, he's a professional photographer based in Salt Lake City. So we met in Duluth, Minnesota for that trip for Patagonia, and we talked a lot on that trip about how important it was to find community and to build community but how difficult it can be and at the time there weren't like groups doing things for folks of color on bikes there were very few i should say and they were very localized and i and this was back in 2018 and you know we when we were talking it was like i started noticing this pattern where there were just a lot of us who felt really isolated. Like it was like, oh, we're kind of the only people of color that are riding bikes in the area we live. And it it's really hard to like find other people. And so, you know, I think the three of us, when we rode together in Minnesota, it felt transformative because it was like, well, like we've never had this because we've never had the opportunity to, to have this. We like can't find each other. And so, you know, Eric and I were like, we want to be able to find each other. We want to like know there are other folks out there. And so that was one of the the reasons we started Pedal to the People. And it's been cool to see it evolve, I think, initially because there were so few people doing things, organizing around folks of color and cycling. We felt like we had to do it all. And it's really cool because now there are so many folks like starting to really organize and, and take the reins. And so we've been able to focus more on the parts that we're really drawn to, which are about storytelling and providing space for people to share their connection to the bike. And even just this week, the story that came out this week, I didn't work on. And so I was seeing it for the first time, like everyone else. And it was just so powerful. I think, you know, this person that we interviewed was talked about their experience and connection to the bike and it was a story that you would never read in like bicycling magazine you know and and i think that's that's the reason we exist because we know that that is so important to have freedom over your narrative and to have a space where like it doesn't matter how like unique or maybe not unique your story is. It doesn't matter whether it's it aligns with the white narrative. It doesn't matter whether it's something that's gonna feel that's gonna make you feel like really uncomfortable things reading it. Like those are still important to have out there. And so we really exist to be a place where those narratives can exist. A quote from the Pedal to the People Instagram earlier this week or last week that really stuck with me and it's something I've been thinking about is like storytelling is not just a tool for the listener. And tell me about that. Tell me what, what you think about that. Ah, gosh, I love that quote. I'm getting chills. I love that quote. Cause I think it's really, you know, one of the things that I do try to talk about, you know, either one-on-one or, or in settings like this is this idea that like storytelling is a powerful tool for us to find healing for the storyteller to find healing because, you know, at least from my experience, finding the language to understand my experience helps you heal from that experience, you know, because it can be such a difficult thing to take what's happening in your mind and in your body and, and to put that into your mouth and send that into the world. And that process of doing that, you know, is in and of itself, creates a story that we can then make sense of, right? Like so much of what happens to us when we don't have the language to explain it, it lives within us. You know, it either lives in our mind or it lives in our bodies. When we don't have the story or the ways to connect it to larger issues, you know, we feel isolated because we don't have a way to understand that the things that are happening to us are not unique to us. And so I I love storytelling i love being able to learn from other people but in my own experience i love writing and and being able to talk about my experiences because it literally helps me make sense of my world my inner world and in making sense of my inner world i can connect it to the outer world and make sense of that and to add value to that conversation 
connection. So I think being able to provide a space where other folks can do that is, you know, I don't take that lightly. I think being trusted to do that is really value is, is, is something I really value and something I, I really try to, to keep close to my heart. And, and especially when I talk to folks about, you know, like, hey, can I share your story and, and letting them know, like, what that process is going to be, why I think it's important, why I want to do that. So, yeah, I think, you know, and we should and that's like the value of it, it, small time storytelling, right? Like journaling, going to therapy, like the value of that is like making sense of your inner world. I think yeah. like putting that stuff out there is another layer to that. And I want to add that, like. I love seeing a story go out through Pedal to the People and the number of people in the comments who relate to that or validate that and just knowing from a personal level what that must be like for that person because it can be really scary to put something personal out there, you know, but our whole goal with the page is like, trust us to put that out there for you and then see what that does for other people because like it will do something and we make sure that we monitor that like it is a supportive environment for folks. That's amazing. Going back to your writing, you wrote a brilliant series of essays for Bike Mag starting in 2020. And it's sort of fascinating how all of this was happening in Minneapolis, which is ranked one of the best bike cities in the country. But it's also because of the history of Minneapolis and redlining, one of the most segregated cities in the country. It seems like an interesting sort of not a hypocrisy, not a dichotomy, but sort of a colorblind assessment of the space of the city and what's available to everyone equally. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, it is it is really interesting, I think, because for folks outside of Minneapolis, it seems like, whoa, it's so wild that it was Minneapolis that's the place that ignited this. But I think for a lot of us who were there for years before, it's not at all surprising. And especially for me, because I was now, I still felt like an outsider there. One of, one of the things I, I found really interesting coming into Minnesota was the number of folks who are from Minnesota that live in Minnesota. And it's really high. And I remember reading a statistic, like seeing this map of the US, and it was like a color-coded map that was like places where the, the people like, it was like rates of people who are from there that live there. And Minnesota had the highest rates of people that are from there that live there. And Nevada had the lowest rates of people <laughs> that are from there that live there. And, and so it, for me, it was like, oh, that's why it's so weird for me because I'm from a state where very few people are from Nevada and very few people that are from Nevada stay there. And so I think, you know, I always felt like this outsider tension being in Minnesota where it was like, I, you know, I'm not from there. I don't have family there. I don't have connection to it. Like there, I had no personal connection outside of being there for grad school. And so I think that allowed me in a lot of ways to see things as they really were and to see them, you know, from a very different lens because it was like, this isn't normalized to me. So things like the fact that it was so segregated, like for me was shocking. Like it blew my mind because I'd never lived somewhere like that. And I think for a lot of people that were there, it just seemed normal. Like even people that could see it, it was like, oh yeah, but a lot of places are like that. But I was like, yeah, but this is really different. Like this is very, very segregated. And just the, I think the amount of pride in their liberalism was something that was very striking to me. You know, they pride themselves on being this like blue liberal state, you know, Minnesota is the only state that's never gone red in a presidential election. And, and so to have it be that, but then also have it be this place where you had these high profile instances of folks being, being killed at the hands of the police leading up to what happened in 2020, it was, as you mentioned, it, it is this really interesting kind of dichotomy and at the same time it's really not a dichotomy because those things are connected and I think it was people's unwillingness to grapple with the fact that it was so segregated and the fact that there was still a lot of racism that led to what happened and it and yeah I think like in that ways it wasn't surprising at all even yeah. though it's very painful to see it happen. 
In one of the essays that you wrote, you questioned cyclists of privilege, you know, saying, just go ride your bike, right? The trail doesn't care what color you are. And having the privilege to be able to say that. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, I think that's such a common thing. It's it's so funny because like, I feel like the language of the oppressor doesn't change. Like it's, it's just gets recycled into something else. And you know, you see it all the time. It's like, so-and-so doesn't care what color you are. This thing doesn't care. You know, and they'll be like, the bike doesn't, the rock doesn't, you know, the, the, you know, whatever, the ski slope doesn't. And you're like, yeah, nobody claimed that that was what was keeping me from there. It was the people. Like, it, these things are run by people. And I think it's always funny to see how, like, humans have an unprecedented amount of control over their environment. And I think about this a lot from, like, studying biology and trying to understand why humans are at the top of this food chain. And the, the, the only thing I can come up with is that humans have just an unprecedented and unbelievable amount of control over our environment. And, and so in that, it's like, how do we not understand that because of that, we control who has access to those environments. We control what happens in those environments. We control how people experience those environments. Like it isn't a neutral place. Nothing that humans create is a neutral place because of the inherent bias that we all have. And it's so interesting because you see it a lot with like technological advances. Like we think we can build technologies that can be unbiased, but if humans build them, they're gonna be biased, right? So I think, I think that's that's a part of the equation It's just acknowledging like when humans are involved, there's always going to be bias and we're always going to have to fix the things that we couldn't predict or we mistakenly made happen. Right. But uh, yeah, I think in particular, I think in that essay, I was speaking to this idea that, you know, I can't as an individual, I can't feel safe on a trail if getting to the trail system puts my life at risk. And I really felt that acutely in the six years I lived in Minneapolis, like I felt more and more this weight pushing down on me, keeping me like still, like keeping me from moving, keeping me from exercising my right to explore and to, to be outside and all of that, because I kept seeing things happen and they kept happening so close to home. And, you know, what I think the big turning point for me was I used to ride my bike, you know, so, so a little background. So Minneapolis, is in an area that's right next to another city called St. Paul. So the two cities lie on, on east and west sides of the Mississippi River. So they're called the Twin Cities. They're two cities, the river runs through them. And the university where I was going to grad school has campuses on both sides. And I lived in Minneapolis, so I would ride my bike to St. Paul where my program, my grad program was. and. I remember um, when I first moved there, I was like so excited because I was coming from Nevada. So just like the sheer volume of water in Minnesota just blew my mind. Like I was just like, this is freaking un unreal. You know, like this is so cool. Um, like I called my dad up. I was like, I cross the Mississippi River every day. I'm going to work. Like how cool is that? Because I remember learning about the Mississippi, like the mighty Mississippi, like, oh my gosh. And just being like, I can't even fathom how much water that actually is. And it is, it's so much water and it is so Oh, beautiful it is the twin cities is just an insanely beautiful city beautiful cities and so about a, a year and a year almost exactly to the day that i started grad school that i started commuting by bike through across the mississippi i rode my bike to work from minneapolis and and less than a mile from my office building a man was murdered by the police a man named philando castile it became a very big case and that was a big turning point for me and I had already been witnessing and seeing other things before that. But that was when I was like, whoa, like, I, I didn't feel safe riding my bike. Like, I was like, whoa, that's scary. Like, I actually rode past this place where that happened. And like, and I just, it, and it's so hard to really codify in language that feeling of like, oh, whoa, that could have been me or that, like, do I know that person? Or like, whoa, I didn't realize how, how, unsafe this really is, right? We think about safety on a bike in terms of like cars and wearing a helmet and, you know, those physical things that we talk about. Well, police violence should be a part of that conversation because that's a real thing. And it's in a car, it's in a bike, it, it's anything, right? It has a physical 
threat to your personhood and your right to move and your right to to explore. So for me, when I'm writing that piece, as you mentioned, it's like I'm thinking about that. I'm thinking about like, how can we not think about safety, physical safety in those terms, in those ways, because that is just as important as wearing a helmet and, and watching for cars, you know? Absolutely. And I liked how you turned that back on the industry at large and gave them sort of tasks and action items and talked about how you can't increase diversity without addressing safety. And you can't bring BIPOC folk into your organization without addressing why they aren't there in the first place. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about that a bit. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm sure being an academic, you know all too well what that's like, right? And and it's it, we used to have this conversation in grad school because um, I did a lot of work. I, I would say, I, I mean, I, I feel like I was born an organizer, but I think I became one. That really evolved for me in grad school. And I did a lot of organizing in grad school out of necessity because I, I needed to survive my grad program. But we used to talk a lot about this idea that white folks see diversity as having everybody be the same but look different <laughs> and how for them that's how they think of diversity it's like oh it's really just a white person but they look different and that's not diversity because by inherent differences in the way we look our experiences are different and then the way we act is different and the way that we carry ourselves is different and that is so important to recognize and to see and and so I think one of the reasons that a lot of BIPOC folks aren't in a lot of spaces is because they're not like white folks by their inherent experiences. And that can be a huge turnoff for people. It's like they want people who are white adjacent, who make them comfortable. And I think that's very hard for a lot of folks of color to do, you know, like, like we just, we don't even talk the same way, you know, we don't think the same way. And I think this idea of like, addressing first why people aren't there for me is so important because diversity essentially these days is the same thing as integration. It's like, it's what they tried to do in the 60s with integration. And we should learn from that. We should learn from what happened then. Because what ended up happening was a lot of people of color were integrated into white spaces and it wasn't safe. You know, you think of, I'm in Arkansas, right? You think of Little Rock, the Little Rock school integration and we see these images of of black folks integrating into white schools and being terrorized literally terrorized by people in that town you know because it's like why are they because they didn't want them there and i think a lot of diversity work nowadays is the same thing it's a lot of let's put people of color into white spaces and it's not really for them it's really to make those spaces come more whatever more marketable more digestible like we're doing the work but no real action behind that no real inclusivity you know no real justice is done like are there people of color in positions of power making decisions are they in the room to talk about whether you know people are safe and what safety looks like so i think you know it's I, I love that people want action. I, th- I love that they want to do something and that's such a good trait to have. I just would like to see a lot more intention and thought behind it. Like, what are we doing this for? What do we want to do? Who do we want to serve and why? I, I, I really stuck on where you said they're looking for people of color to be white adjacent. And this is something that I work through, think through, sit through as a biracial girl who's very light skinned and I really appreciated in your essay, what does it mean to be really black? How you were addressing some of the gatekeeping around blackness and the microaggressions that light skinned black people will face. Talk to me about that a bit. Yeah, I feel like it's an evolving thing for me. <laughs> I just wrote this piece about colorism that I feel really proud of and, and, I, and I think it grapples with the other side of that, of recognizing the privilege of being biracial or being racially ambiguous because I absolutely think you can't it's both it's there's the gatekeeping around what does it mean to be black but there's also the privilege of like being more digestible for white viewership or white consumption right absolutely and i think that's something i'd like to see more conversation around and just like yeah as 
mixed race folks were always walking that line. Where where are we, right? Like there's two sides to this. There's a complicated experience with this. And I think like for me, it was really unique because I'm adopted. I'm adopted by white people. I'm a transracial adoptee. And I didn't know I was adopted until I was 12. And my family, you know, for lack of better word, lied to me about why I looked different. And I didn't know any better, right? Like they told me, you know, I just thought I was a white person that had darker skin. And so because of that, I think I will likely spend the rest of my life trying to figure out what it means to be black for me. And I think where I've landed is like, there is nothing that defines being black except for unfortunately experiences of racism, but also acknowledging that we are ever expanding. And that's the beauty of it. That's like what excites me about claiming blackness for myself is like that idea that like, I can speak a language that white folks are just not going to get, right? Like I can say one word in 12 or 20 different ways. And I know like a black person will absolutely understand what I'm saying, right? And I love that. And I think, you know, for me, this, this being more palatable and digestible because of my proximity to whiteness means that I have to work harder to be an ally to black people. Like, and that is so important to me that I never betray that, that like, I am here as a comrade to say things that I know that darker skinned people cannot. And that's why I wrote the things I did. And that's why I say the things I do and why I continue to walk a line of being a sponsored athlete, but never at the expense of being able to say and do what I want to do, which I, which for me at the end of the day is, is abolition and, and liberation. It's almost, it's a huge responsibility, light skin privilege to not just fall into sort of the role of the oppressor or to just accept your privilege and move forward. It's a big responsibility. And I want to see more. And I think this piece I just wrote, which will be out in um, the newest issue of Cyclista Zine, that's what I try, I try to say in it. It's like, let's, nobody is expecting you to be any different than you are in terms of like, you can't change that you are light skinned. What you can change is resting on that. It's that you can change like, you know, because colorism, and I talk about this in the piece, is as old as racism itself, right? That has always been around. This is not a new idea. And I talk about during, during slavery, colorism was a big way that they pitted people against each other. You know, light-skinned folks were allowed to be in the house. They were allowed to do domestic chores. They were allowed to do things that historically and to this day we deem as more acceptable forms of labor. And because of that, you know, there was a lot of animosity. There was a lot of tension between enslaved folks. And historically, there were the light-skinned house people that they they could be ratting on and and ratting out their fellow enslaved people to the master, or they could be ratting out the master to their fellow enslaved people. They could be working to help liberate all enslaved people, or they could take their place next to the master and be quiet, right? And what I want to say is like, let's be those people who are here to liberate all enslaved people because at the end of the day, we're all under a system that doesn't benefit us, that benefits the master, that benefits white folks, that benefits the oppressor. So I understand the urge to take your place and sit there quietly and be comfortable. I really get that, but it's not worth it. And at the end of the day, like we're in this together (laughs) and you have more in common with your fellow enslaved than you ever will with the master. Absolutely. One of the other things that I I found really interesting, and I've not had anyone sort of articulate this insight before, is that representation also combats stereotypes because it shows that there is more than one way to be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about that. Yeah, I feel like this goes along with trying to understand blackness for yourself, right, which I think a lot of people struggle with. And and I say that as like, 
I always felt like it was just me that struggled with it, but I've realized I think all Black people, to some degree, struggle with trying to understand what it means to be Black because we get told by everyone what it means. And it's not until we decide we're going to define it for ourselves. And for me, having those representations of Blackness that was outside of the stereotype helped helped and continues to help me step into defining it for myself. And it's an ever-evolving thing because I find myself not even realizing that I'm telling myself subconsciously Black people don't do that or that's not for me. And then it's not until like I really start, it's usually, oh, I see somebody else doing the thing I've told myself I can't do. And then I realize, oh, you know what? I was subconsciously telling myself I couldn't do that because I was Black. And for me, the big thing with that was water sports. Like, yes. <laughs> I, you know, because I never, I, I didn't grow up with water sports because I grew up in the desert. But when I moved to Minnesota, you know, I was like, it's laden with water and people kayak and do all these water sports. And I had such a resistance to it and I couldn't figure out why. And then it was actually seeing my friend KC, who's a, who's a, a black non-binary person paddleboarding and seeing those photos unlocked something in me. It was like, oh shit, like they're doing it. I could do that too. And it was like this moment of being like, oh dang, like I didn't even realize I was holding myself back because of the internal bias I had. And I think, and I wonder if you relate to this too. I think being a light-skinned person there's a lot of figuring out there's there's a lot of I think pressure to perform your race because yes. you yeah you feel a pressure you want to fit in somewhere you're always trying to find a way to fit in so there's this like pressure to perform your race and and I think within that you adopt your own biases and stereotypes that you then live your life based on so yeah just seeing those you know seeing people who are so willing to just be like, whatever, okay, maybe black people don't do this, but I want to do it. It's like, it gives you permission to say like, oh, dang, like, yeah, I could do that too. Like, there isn't anything that's codified that says black people can't paddleboard, you know, or black people can't ride a mountain bike or whatever. So, you know, it's so, it's so important. Like that, that representation piece, like, I do think we have to go beyond just representation, but I still continue to think it's super important, especially for youth. Yeah, I'm I'm forever sending all the nieces and nephews photos of black skiers. I'm like, <laughs> no, we do this. We do it all the time. Exactly. <laughs> so now you are in Arkansas and you've become the executive director of All Bikes Welcome. Tell me about this organization. Yeah, we are a 501c3 nonprofit organization working in Northwest Arkansas to provide free year-round programming for the benefit of racial equity and and gender inclusion. So we really focus on serving the FTWNB community that stands for fem trans women non-binary and and BIPOC folks, Black, Indigenous, and people of color. So, you know, we're very, very new. <laughs> so we're we're still getting our bearings. We have a launch party May 20th at the Fayetteville Public Library, which I'm super psyched about. We're just going to eat and drink and play games and get to know each other. I'm really excited to be in Arkansas. I think Looking back on my life, this wasn't the goal, but looking back, I feel like I've lived this very Forrest Gump, like just happened to be in the right place at the right time kind of life. You know, being in Minneapolis in 2020 and all that went down there and being able to kind of be a voice through all of that. And I really feel Arkansas is, is another place that that I think is going to be a big battleground. And I think it already is, especially for, you know, LGBTQ rights. And so that's what really draws me here. You know, being somebody who's lived in a lot of places, I the best way for me to to get to know a place and to make a place feel like home is to be involved in, in the struggles that are going on in that place. And, you know, I think Northwest Arkansas is this mountain biking mecca and they pride themselves on being the mountain bike capital of, of the world. And and it's true, the trail infrastructure is incredible and and 
and what they're doing here with with trail work and outdoor experiences is incredible. And at the same time, Arkansas leads the US in anti LGBTQ legislation. And, you know, affordable housing is a crisis in Northwest Arkansas. And I think that's if you love a place just as if you love somebody you have to see them for in all of their glory and all of their struggle if you love a place if you're connected to it you you have to see it for all its beauty and all its ugliness at, at once and and i'm i'm here to do that like you know i want better for this place so i'm, I'm excited and i think we have a really unique opportunity as cyclists because trans rights are, you know, sport is a battleground for trans rights. We have opportunities as cyclists to make an impact and to provide space where we say, this sport is gonna be different and we're gonna change sport by changing this sport first. And so I, I wanna be a part of that. I wanna see that happen and I'm, I'm here to make it happen. <laughs> yes. And you're also the host of the annual Brit Fest. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So this sounds like the most awesome <laughs> event. Tell us about this event. Yes, you should come. Let's make that happen. Yeah, so Gritfest is our, so the organization started as Gritfest, as a, as a festival for gender inclusivity. And the idea is really as it started was bring whatever bike you have. Like, you don't need to be an experienced mountain biker. You don't need to bring, like, bring or wear or own the newest, latest gear. Come as you are and, and, we're here to provide that environment where you can like try this out, you know? And I think it's important to have those environments because so often in outdoor sports, it's like, I think a lot of times we bring people in and it's like, we're going to convert you to this sport. And it's like, you know, it's okay to just provide an experience for people to try it and decide for themselves whether they want to keep doing it. As long as they have that positive experience and that's not the thing holding them back from, from trying it. If they have a positive experience, they can also still decide like, yeah, but I don't really want a mountain bike anymore. Or like, you know, maybe this isn't something I'm gonna keep doing, but it's okay, like just have the experience, right? So that's really like what we wanna do is, is to provide that. And we're really excited to be a festival that serves women and non-binary folks first and foremost, and that we're not just a women's festival. We, we serve folks who are, are on the margins of gender identity as well. I was reading up about it and I love it. And it's uh, this year, it's in, what month is it in this year? It's September 30th to October 2nd. <laughs> I feel like I have those dates like burned into my brain so that I can, I can relay those. It's at Centennial Park in Fayetteville, Arkansas. And, and we're really excited. Our tickets will go on sale at the beginning of June. So we're, we're hoping for you know, we're hoping for a big turnout, three to 400 is what we're aiming for. And I'm excited. I mean, I, I'm like, you know, kind of racking my brain a little bit with the fact that I have to run a festival in less than six months, but you know, we're going to make it happen. <laughs> it's going to happen. It's going to be amazing. It just looks like such an incredible event. And yeah, Hey, if I can, if I can be in Arkansas at the end of September, I will be there. Yes. Please <laughs> come. It would be amazing. And my, you know, I really just want more, more black and brown folks there. Like that's where my heart lies. Like, especially, you know, FTWNB folks of color. Like I just, you know, I think it's so important that we have, we have more space for, for ourselves because I don't know if you feel this, but like, I think lots of times the default is like black is, is male and woman is white. And there's no, and it's like, no, like there's intersections and like, we need to acknowledge and recognize those. So I'm here yeah. for it. We need to stop being in spaces where we're the only, you yeah. talk about the only, the only person of color, the only, you know, female, female identified person, the only female, you know, exteriorly presenting person mm -hmm. in a space and being the only is lonely. Yeah. It's exhausting. I need to be able to look over. I, you know, cause I feel like there's a look, you can just do a look right at, at somebody who's like you in a space. And it's like, you don't know words need to be said. I just need to be able to have the look for one moment because somebody about to say something and I, you know, right. I just need, I need to have mm -hmm. the look. <laughs> you heard that, right? Uh -huh, exactly. Exactly. <laughs>
Um, but before the festival comes out, you have a film that's streaming right now at the Film by Bike Festival. And one of the quotes in the trailer is a quote that you've said like three or four times a day, and I keep stepping my toe on it. Our ability and our right to move and take up space as humans is under constant threat. Tell me about the film. Tell me about the impetus. It sounds like something, it, it sounds like a really interesting concept. I haven't had a chance to see it yet. Yeah, the film is is beautiful. It's it's been a long time in the making. We our our filmmaker Kiki Ong and her crew are recent graduates, undergraduate graduates from UC Santa Cruz. So from their film school, and I'm just so excited for them because you know to make a film and to be recent graduates and and have that out is just such an accomplishment. But yeah, we we received a, this BIPOC filmmaker grant. I want to back in the end of 2020. So this has been a long time in the making. And and that was through Film by Bike. And and we just wanted to tell the story kind of of Pedals to People, why that's why it's why narrative representation is important and, and to talk about this idea of movement and, and mobility justice. And for me, mobility justice is so connected to so many parts of our life. You know, we can talk about it in in these very present terms of being outdoor recreationists who, you know, we want the outdoors to be accessible for everybody. We can talk about it in terms, you know, like I've said earlier, we can talk about it in terms of like safety and, and whether movement is safe for everybody. But mobility justice is connected to so many parts of our life. You know, we can talk about it in terms of things like border regulation, right? Like that is a threat to people's right to move. You know, borders are inherently a construct. When you drive from Southern Arizona into Mexico, nothing changes. <laughs> the landscape is the same. Animals can move freely from one part to the other, right? And humans deserve, in my opinion, that same freedom and right as well. You know, so it's connected to that. It's it, socioeconomically, right? Do we have the ability to move up from our circumstances to, you know, do we have do we have a right to own a home to to have safety within shelter, right? That's inherently connected to mobility, you know, and we can talk about it in terms of health, you know, and the ways we think about things like food deserts and access to food is inherently connected to our ability to not only like access food, like move into a, a space where food is available, but then once that food is in our bodies, how does it our effect affect our ability to exercise movement and express ourselves, right? So for me, like, mobility justice, our ability to, as humans, our right to express ourselves through movement is connected to so many parts of our life. And there's so many aspects of, of our political world that are constantly tied to and connected to how we move. And I just want to say one more thing about that. Like, I and, and I'm constantly learning about this and there are people who are far more intelligent and able to articulate this concept. But when we think about, you know, recent attacks to reproductive rights, that is inherently related to our ability to move. Because at the end of the day, abortion has always been around, abortion has always existed, and it is intimately tied to access to the, the ability to have safe abortion. And whether that exists in this country, people will find a way to exercise their right to, for choice. And what, if they don't have the ability to move to spaces where they can exercise that right, that is an attack on people's ability to, to exercise freedom. And so, yeah, I think this is a concept I, I'm kind of always trying to figure out how is it tied to to, to all these different world things. But for me, it, it really is like movement is the most human experience. And, and of course it's tied to, to, to disability rights as well. And, and, you know, I've always thought about this idea that there's nothing of course inherently wrong with being disabled. There's something wrong with how we build the world. People's ability is determined by how we create a world in which they can access things. It has nothing to do with pe people themselves. Yeah. And that and that can be all forms of ability, right? So 
I could go on about this. <laughs> I, I totally, I'm totally with you. There was a, a journalist a few weeks ago who, and I don't know if he was quoting someone else or if it was his own individual thought, but he said, accessibility isn't extra steps. It's the steps you missed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like, I mean, because you're an indigenous scholar, right? Like, you know, it's tied to that, right? Land movements. And, you know, what's so interesting is like deterrent politics, deterrent politics, I assume is a word, or it may have been a phrase I, I made up. And if I did, You've heard it here first, but deterrent politics, right? That's what is happening right now in the US with Roe v. Wade. It's this idea like we're going to deter people from future things, right? Deterrent politics, you see it along the border constantly. We're going to turn people away to deter other people from coming. Deterrent politics never works, but it is always, always tied to movement. And that, that I think that's something that like, we as a community, as an outdoor community, it would behoove us to really like think a lot more about that. I absolutely agree. Wow. Just so, so thought provoking. This has been incredible. I'm going to ask you one last question before we, before we do closeouts. I mean, you, the way that you are thinking through all of these different ways and their interconnections and their intersections, what is one question you've always wanted to answer, but no one's asked you? Oh, that's a good question. Gosh. <laughs> I I don't know. I've never thought about that. Wow. Okay, give me a minute to think okay. about that. Something that nobody's ever asked me that I've always wanted to be asked. Gosh, you know, I feel like I, I, I'm going to get off this call and immediately think of something. That's okay. We can uh, jump back in. We've got all the flexibility in the world. Hmm. Gosh, I want, I want to say like, you know, okay, this is what I'm going to say for now. I think because you mentioned it's like, I have this way that I see things and these interconnected things. And oh, here's what it is. I think that lots of times people think that you just, especially as people of color, right? You just inherently have this knowledge. Like you inherently are just you know, one thing I hear or one thing I get the sense of is like, I'm a person of color, I'm a black person, I'm inherently not racist, I, or I inherently have no racist ideologies. And it's like, no, I mean, I grew up in the same country and consuming the same media for the most part, watching the same television as all of you. Like I was inundated with racist imagery, you know, stereotypes poor representations, right? But I have done the work and continue to do the work to unlearn that. And that will be a lifelong thing. And the process of learning and unlearning is lifelong. I, I didn't just wake up one day with this inherent knowledge. I pushed myself to learn this stuff. And especially, I want to say, especially for me, because I grew up with white conservative parents and they had and still have very racist ideologies. So I was inundated with a lot of that growing up, but I've decided I've chosen different for myself and I continue to read. And right now I'm reading this book about the drug crisis in Appalachia. Cause it's like, okay, I live in the South now. I want to understand this. This is a part of where I live now. And I want to go the extra step to understand what people are going through here. That's the kind of stuff I do because for me, I want to keep learning and I want to keep understanding. So I think the question is like, how do you make these connections? Push yourself to keep learning, read stuff that you wouldn't normally read, you know, like ask questions. And I think also understand that everybody is where they are for a reason. Like people don't just end up where they are. Be willing to interrogate that. I think, for instance, one of the things I've learned about this drug and oftentimes it's methamphetamine in rural Appalachia, a lot of people take drugs because they are in poverty and they have to work multiple jobs. So they have to stay up to work multiple jobs, right? It's not because they're a loser who wants to be a drug addict and like can't get their life together. In fact, it's like the complete opposite. They're struggling to get by. They want to make ends meet for their family and they're doing everything they can to do that, right? So it's like, we can't, 
I think as humans, we have this, like, we want to like rest on our first judgments about things instead of really interrogating, like there's something deeper there. And that's true for everyone. Like people's racist ideologies come from somewhere. People's misogyny comes from somewhere. It's not because they're like a hateful, terrible person, even if their actions can sometimes signal that it usually comes from somewhere from something, you know? That's a fantastic answer. <laughs> I love that. So what is next? You've got Crit Fest coming up, settling into your new spot. What's what's the next year look like for you? What's the summer season? What's going on? Oof, yeah, the summer's busy. I'm racing my bike next weekend, which I'm really excited about. There's a endurance mountain bike race here locally. It's it's the first year they're doing it. So I'm excited for them. I'm actually going to go help stuff some packets after this just just to help out. It's called Noon to Moon. I'm going to be racing my bike for 12 hours and I'm nervous but excited. And this is my first mountain bike race in two years. I The last time I raced was February 2020. So it's it feels like a long time coming for me. I was one of those like I'm not racing during the pandemic people and that ended up being, you know, kind of in some ways forced upon me, but really great. Uh, really great break. So I'm excited about that. I'm going to be racing my bike more, which I'm stoked about because I just really enjoy that competitive environment. I'm a really competitive person and like, I'm learning to just accept that about myself. And so I'll be doing that. We're going to run some really cool clinics leading up to Grit Fest for gender expansive folks. So I'm excited about that. Just give, I love clinics. I've like, so I like never used to take clinics and then I started taking them over the pandemic and realized they are amazing. <laughs> if you can find the right teachers who are really, really great to work with, like clinics can be like just, you know, really expansive for your, for your practice. And I'm going to write, I, I've started writing again, which feels really good. I, this, Cyclist Dizzy Peace is the first thing that I've published since 2020. So I took a whole year off. I mean, I was writing my dissertation, so I feel like that's my excuse. But I, I feel really good. I'm, I'm trying to kind of step into this growth mindset around writing and allowing my writing to, to enter the world before, you know, not, not sit on it for a long time, not try to perfect it, but really just try to put it out there and, and be open to whatever feedback or, or whatever um, comes my way from it. So that feels really good. I, I feel um, really fulfilled by that. I have s uh, some really cool projects in the works that I'm excited to write about. And, and I'm just, I'm looking forward to kind of pushing myself to to grow in in, in my writing and, and communication. So yeah, big things. Amazing. Big things. <laughs> Where do our listeners find you? Where do they find Pedal to the People? Where do they find All Bikes Welcome? Plug your sponsors. Give me all the links. <laughs> yeah, they can find All Bikes Welcome. We're on Instagram at All Bikes Welcome. We also have a Grit Festival Instagram and website, gritfestival.com. Pedal to People, we're on Instagram. We're still working on the website. If anybody is interested in building us a website, I would love that. Pedal to the People, we're going to be doing some really cool in-person storytelling activation things so we posted that on Instagram we would love to meet people we're literally always just interested in seeing who's out there and it's been really cool to see the community grow I'm on Instagram as well I feel like I'm like a little Instagram hoe over here but it's just the easiest place to disseminate information <laughs> I'm on Instagram at rachel.olzer you can also email me rachelolzer at gmail also working on my own website I have too many projects which is the academic in me. So, you know, we're, we're getting there. But I, I'm always, I love to hear from people who have who've read or listened to, to things of mine. It's, it's always really great to hear. I mean, you know, whatever it is they have to say, it's always, it's always good information. And, you know, look for some of my writing. I'm writing a column for Taxa Outdoors these days. So I'll be putting something out like quarterly, which I'm excited about. Cyclistazine, I'm, I'm going to be trying to write more there. And yeah, I feel like you asked me something else and now I can't remember. Oh, your sponsors. Ah, sponsors, yeah. Sponsors, Specialized Bicycle Components. They've been like my day one. I think they saw they saw the 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 beauty before I did. SRAM Components, they've been really great uh, to work with and, and their stuff is just like really incredible. Hammerhead makes 
literally the best bike bike computers. I, <laughs> and this is not just because they're a sponsor, but like they're, I always describe it like their bike computers do the things you wish your bike computer would do, but it's never smart enough to do it. Like it, <laughs> I love it. Like I'm always like, I'm always like, oh, you know, my partner would be like, you know, you can just do that. And I'm like, see, that's one of those things where I, I would think you could do that, but then I just assume you can't because it's never going to read my mind like that. So anyway, love them. Saris has been great. They they make bike racks. I'm grateful to them uh, for the support. Velocio Apparel, they're incredible. Their stuff is just gorgeous. I feel like a million bucks when I leave for a ride, and that's rare for me. So grateful to them. And I'm probably forgetting some, but... <laughs> those are the big ones that's okay because those links and any other links we miss we'll catch and they will be in the show notes for this episode Rachel this has been incredibly mind expansive and generative thank you so much oh thank you so much and let's connect I would love to have you at the festival or whatever in whatever way like I can support I'd love to so thank you for having me And that is it for the first episode of this new season. Thank you everyone for listening. Links on where to find Rachel are available on the show notes at BIPOCoutside.com. I hope this conversation was as generative for you as it was for me. And if it was, don't hesitate to smash the like button. I hope you'll join us again for another episode of BIPOC Outside.